The Outline World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, July 25th, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries, and today on The Dispatch, we'll be talking about trademarking offensive things, overpaying health CEOs, and finally, dreaming. Here's The Dispatch. Power. I'm here with Jeffy Haza. Jeff, today you wrote a story about uh, some very special trademark applications. Tell me what that story was about. So last month, a Supreme Court case involving a band named The Slants struck down a federal provision that uh, prohibited people from applying for trademarks that included offensive language. The band was named as an act of reappropriation, adopting a demeaning term aimed at Asian Americans and wearing it as a badge of pride. But when the band attempted to federally register their name as a trademark, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office declined their application. The USPTO said it was against the law to register names that disparaged others. And in striking down that provision, it kind of opened the door for other people who want to name their products after unsavory terms to kind of have carte blanche. The most famous example, of course, is the Washington Redskins, which have been in hot water lately because there's been a larger push for them to change their name. So Reuters reported as a result of this in the last month, there have been up to nine applications for derogatory terms like the N-word or swatsikas or things like that, and seven specifically for the N-word. After we wrote about this, we went and looked at some of the applications and there are actually now eight. Oh, a new that, one today. <laughs> a new one today. <laughs> eight that use the N-word or some variation on the N-word. There are four applications in particular that are from one guy who has basically been going around saying he has an agenda with this trademark and he sort of wants to assert power over these terms. And he said different things that made it sound like he he either respected the idea that these terms were offensive or insensitive to certain populations. And he also said things that maybe suggested that he didn't take that idea quite so seriously. But he put in a number of trademark applications and it seems like those may not exactly be approved by the USPTO. It should also be noted that the company he was filing under is called Snowflake LLC. Which right. Yeah. Might, Snowflake Enterprises, I think. Snowflake Enterprises. Yeah. So this could be, very well be a very big, elaborate troll. Yes. So we talked to an attorney about what actually trademark is, what it means, what it's supposed to do, and how it's being used now that this non-disparagement provision has been taken out of the equation. Her name is Meredith Rose, and she is an attorney with public knowledge. I work primarily on copyright issues, um, a little bit, little bit of trademark here and there. Public Knowledge is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. that deals with intellectual property and Internet freedom issues. Let's all step way back. What is a trademark? So if you have something that you use to identify your product and you use that in business, the government will, under certain circumstances, essentially grant you a sort of cabined monopoly to be able to use that term in commerce to avoid confusion with other products. Um, the catch is that you actually have to be using it in commerce or you have to plan on using it in commerce and you can't like sort of squat on trademarks for that reason. A lot of people look at trademark as kind of almost like copyright that you don't necessarily 
have to do anything with it. So there was a discussion floating around a couple of years ago, actually. Um, it was around the time that they were having the debate about whether to remove the Confederate flag from uh, the South Carolina State House, I guess. And there was this sort of a meme running around that maybe Jay-Z and Beyonce should trademark the Confederate flag and thus prevent people from using it. Um, which was an interesting way of looking at the problem. Um, but I think folks miss that, you know, trademark is not, you can't just get a trademark and then own a word. Uh, you get a trademark so that you can use it in commerce, so that you can sell products or services. And if you don't use that word to sell products or services, then you lose the trademark. So the Supreme Court kind of got rid of this provision that said that you couldn't trademark words that are offensive. Right. And so what kind of effect has that had so far? The result has unsurprisingly been this, you know, uptick in folks trying to register just trademarks for these just just offensive words um, without actually using them in commerce. You know, I think people are sort of doing it for laughs uh, in a lot of cases to, you know, say, I want to get a trademark on this word. And, you know, which is fine. Do what you want. It, it is a very expensive filing fee. So people are spending a lot of money just sort of for giggles. Uh, so while it, you know, a lot of people may look at this as funny that you can now, you know, funny or a political statement or what have you, that they can go in and apply for these trademarks on these offensive terms that otherwise would have been banned under the anti-disparagement provisions. Fundamentally, I don't think it's going to happen that much. I think most of these are probably going to get denied because a lot of them are just for shock value. Uh, and a lot of the ones that do get granted, you know, are probably ripe to be lost if you don't use them in commerce. So I think just general public understanding of what actually constitutes a trademark is, is probably a little bit skewed on that front. So what's your basic take on how, how significant this change is? Yeah. You know, the first thing that immediately comes to mind, and I think that everyone thinks of when they heard this case, was the Washington Redskins um, and their issues. So, I mean, it, and I feel like trademark has been a a legal avenue through which um, a lot of broader social debates have been brought to bear in a legal setting. Um, uh, the Washington Redskins being, you know, one of the really high profile ones. Um, I'm not intimately familiar with the history of the, the trademark aspect of the Washington Redskins dispute. Uh, having said that, if someone were to try and bring a case to get it invalidated based on offensiveness, that would, you know, you can't, you lose that ground now. Um, as a practical matter, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if you start seeing small sort of, um, very niche, uh, marketing products cropping up in some of the sort of darker corners of, of the internet and social discourse, uh, marketing, you know, things with really disparaging names, you know, that wouldn't surprise me terribly. Thank you so much for your time. Great. No problem. Power. Healthcare CEOs in the U.S. have been making money hand over fist in the seven years since the Affordable Care Act was passed. Their pay has been rising by about 11% every year since 2010, according to an analysis by Axios. 
That analysis looked at 113 CEOs at 70 of the largest healthcare companies. John Martin, the former CEO of pharmaceutical company Gilead Sciences, topped the list. He brought home $863 million in the ACA era. The average compensation package was worth $20 million a year, most of it in stock. The focus on stock price incentivizes CEOs to push their companies to sell more prescription drugs, perform more tests and services, and raise prices. These are actions which often do not lead to better health care for patients. We'll be right back. Culture. I'm here with Raya Kamir, the culture editor at The Outline. Hi, Raya. Hi. So you've been doing these playlists every month. Can you talk about what the idea is there? So every month, me and The Outline social media editor, Khalila Duz, put together a playlist tied to a theme about something that's going on in the world. So we've, we've done a few different ones, including climate change, um, labor, and uh, the concept of luck. And what's this month's playlist about? So this month's playlist is about dreams. It's inspired by all of these anxiety dreams that Khalil and I noticed we'd been having and that our friends had also been having. Oh, no. Yeah. So, I mean, I have always sort of remembered my dreams. I've been very—my brain has worked in a strange way like that. Um, And a dream that I had recently was really weird. It was, like, in a swimming pool, and I had on ice skates, and I was going around accidentally cutting people. Um, And I woke up, and I was like, what the heck is that all about? Um, And Kalila had a pretty good interpretation, I think, of, of, of what my subconscious was doing. It sounds like you think that there is more value in looking at what you dream and remembering what you dream. Yeah, I love dreams. I mean, think about it. You, you go to sleep, you close your eyes, and your brain pretty much makes a movie. And then you wake up. I think that's fascinating. I think it's incredible. Um, I don't think that dream analysis has to always be literal, but I do think that, you know, we spend so much of our lives asleep that there is some value in thinking about what's going on in our brain during that time. So we're going to hear some other dreams now from people who called in their own. Yeah, we put out a call on Anchor um, to our listeners, and we got in some pretty interesting responses of people's recent anxiety dreams. Great. Let's listen to them. Basically, there was a gigantic living oyster that came to life and, like, crawled out of the water and started chasing me everywhere. And no matter where I went, even in the forest and everything, it was able to chase me because it got, like, a mutant body after magical coins were dropped into him. You couldn't, it was one of those dreams where you couldn't escape no matter what you were doing. Even if you thought you were safe, you were never actually safe. I started having a stress dream wherein my teeth fell out and then they were replaced by Tic Tacs. And then those Tic Tacs became giggling Billy Bushes. And then the giggling Billy Bushes turned into Bill Clinton's that said even more vulgar stuff. I think I can say. It was, I think, in a desert. It was a sandy place, anyway. And I woke up in the desert, and I didn't know where I was. And all around that I looked, there was no sign of civilization. And so I started walking, and I found this burnt-out house. And when I looked inside, I saw my family. And I didn't know if they were sleeping or if they were injured or, or, or dead, I wasn't sure, and then I woke up with, with cold sweats and tears. 
definitely one of one of my more traumatic experiences when sleeping. You can find a link to our dreams playlist at theoutline.com or by searching Spotify for The Outline. That concludes The Dispatch. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen. You can also find links to subscribe at theoutline.com slash podcasts. I'm Adrian Jeffries, and we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.